0: Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website www.exchangechurch.org.au Today we're going to start a new series, a new series today from the Book of Revelation and I uh, approach this with... um, Humility. I approach this with uh, somewhat fear and trembling as well. Uh, I thank the Lord for the book of Revelation. It's a glorious book. It's a book that's a bit of a challenge for us. But uh, I think it's a book also uh, that's filled with faith and filled with hope and filled with um, the strength of the Gospel too as we apply ourselves to it and see the truth that's in there. And, and probably if, if there's one book that's created more controversy and confusion in the church... Uh, perhaps even division of the church, uh, unnecessarily so, I believe, it's probably the book of Revelation. Uh, Christians have debated and disputed this book down through the ages, across the centuries. Uh, A bloke who died a few years ago said this, his name was Leonard Ravenel, he said, Revelation is a book of majesty, a book of mystery, and a book of misery. The majesty of Jesus Christ the mystery of its writings and the misery of final judgment and damnation for all time for those who've rejected Jesus and not followed, obeyed the gospel. Yet it's a book that's filled with the hope of the gospel, it's a book that is filled with Jesus Christ from the very first verse to the very last verse. It's a book for our encouragement, it's a book to actually fuel our worship of Jesus and the great Saviour that He is as well. It, it's also a book that piques our interest about the end of the world. It, it really sort of just grabs us and, and makes us think about that. So we're going to believe the Holy Spirit's going to give us a revelation here, as we read through the book of a revelation, which will be a divine unveiling of Jesus Christ, because that is what the book is all about. It's all about Jesus Christ. So... Turn with me to the last book of the Bible, and we're going to read, follow on from uh, Esther, who read so well for us before. I'm going to read from verse 9 through to 18 of chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades." Lord, we thank You today that we're able to come and uh, open up Your well, We ask and pray, Holy Spirit, as we just approach this wonderful, glorious, mysterious book, uh, we ask, Holy Spirit, today You would grant us uh, really humble, open hearts. Not to be confused, not to be overconfident, but Lord, to humbly sit before You now and pray that You would speak into our hearts and begin to unveil a glorious picture of Jesus, we pray. Uh, Lord, we ask and pray that now in Your name. Amen. Okay, you would have got a handout today as you come in through the door, if you come in through that door you would have got a handout. Uh, That is just some helps and tips to help us as we read through the book of Revelation and I'm going to refer a little bit to some of that today. Uh, So just something to place in your Bible and to just sort of keep handy there for you. Well today we do start at the, uh, arrive at the start of the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ and that's right in the first verse. Uh, It's a really difficult book that people don't read often because they think it's just too hard to understand what the heck is going on in this book. Or other people can read it too confidently and they think they've got a real clear handle on what's taking place in Revelation, they've got it all worked out when they probably haven't got it all worked out. We can either avoid it or we can be sort of overconfident with it. It's unlike any other book from the New Testament that we have, in that it's not straightforward. We can't just pick it up, the book of Revelation, and just follow a really easy thought flow through Revelation. It's not that easy. Uh, it's also a book uh, that a number of Christian movies have been made about over the years, particularly the 70s and 80s when I was uh, a young guy. Uh, a church I used to go to had, a, had film weeks where we'd show a series of these films on Revelation... I remember I used to have trouble sleeping some nights after watching those movies because they have these weird, crazy creatures coming in and doing all sorts of stuff. So it's a book they've made lots of movies about. And I think recently, um, Kirk Cameron was in a bunch of films. I've forgotten what the name of them are. Left Behind series, Left Behind series. So it's got all sorts of sort of um, history that comes with it. So here's where we want to go today, just initially, we want to set up here some some helpful foundations and guides to navigate our way through the book of uh, of Revelation and then we're going to end up in those last few verses where Jesus tells us to fear not. So let's let's build some helps and some foundations here to help steer us and navigate us through uh, Revelation. Again, as I said, we have trouble reading Revelation. There's been countless books here written with a wide variety of ways of seeing Revelation. That's because it is an easy book to interpret a number of different ways. Uh, The imagery and the descriptive language, which we saw some of that just in our reading then about Jesus, uh, that sort of imagery and descriptive language seems to fit like it would fit right on in with a current Marvel movie. Just the way these fantastic creatures and things are described in there and, and the characters that are there. And by the way, if you are watching Marvel movies, they've actually got another one they're releasing this year called The Eternals, which is an amazing thought. Now they're actually thinking about eternal perspectives here, even in the Marvel thing. Anyway, that's a side note. Revelation has what we call apocalyptic genre or literature. Uh, It's a writing style that was really popular around the time of John the Apostle who wrote this book. It was was a way of actually communicating that time in apocalyptic literature... Uh, has, uses a vivid array of figures like beasts, dragons, bulls, seals, horses and a whole range of stuff and usually does it to communicate in supernatural ways a heightened intensity of what the author is trying to communicate at the time. They use this vivid imagery to really give a heightened intensity of what they're trying to communicate as they write that book. So when it's like that, with all that imagery there and all those symbols and all these sort of weird-looking creatures and stuff that we can't get our head around, we either don't read it because we just don't understand it or we get some far-out thoughts about Revelation that are probably right off the grid and not really lined up with what John wanted us to know. So there's trouble in reading Revelation. Uh, Revelation isn't a linear book to read. You might be saying, what do you mean by that, Todd? What I mean by that is this... As you read the Revelation letter, it isn't written primarily in chronological order. It doesn't go like, this happens, and then that happens, and then this happens, and then that happens, and then this happens. It doesn't primarily read like that. I'm not saying there's no order whatsoever in the book of Revelation, But it's not actually written primarily in chronological order, that's not how to read the book of Revelation like it's a linear thing taking place one thing after the other. Revelation is primarily written in a circular manner, circular in the way it's written. John writes that Jesus is sovereign, that He has won the victory, that we do need to persevere and that judgment has come and judgment is coming. And what John does, is he actually circles again with another vision, saying the same thing. And then he circles again with another vision, saying the same thing. And then he circles again with another vision, saying a similar thing. And you particularly see that through chapters 4 to 19. It's like he keeps circling around a similar theme. So it's not linear or chronological, it's circling. It's circling. And then you get to chapters 20 and 22, and then we end with a new heavens and a new earth, when we get to the end there, which is a glorious way to finish Revelation. Uh, It's also important to remember that John never intended us to understand or interpret the book of Revelation by making up charts or timelines. That's not what John was intending for us, to somehow wrap our minds around that. We can be pretty confident that as John was writing this to the seven churches we can be pretty confident he wasn't expecting them at the back of their house or the back of their synagogue or the back of their building, or wherever they're meeting, he wasn't expecting them to put up a big chart or timeline trying to actually work out what's happening here in Revelation. He wasn't expecting that of those guys. Now, I've seen that before and I've seen many put Revelation into charts and into timelines and I get that, if you're going to read Revelation as a chronological or linear type thing like one thing follows the next and I understand it I was I can remember when I was a young guy again traveling ministry would come to our church and they put these um, over projected massive timelines and charts up there and just saying how this will happen and that will happen and I can remember as a kid thinking oh that's all just too much to take in I can't, how am I ever going to remember all this stuff ha- taking place? So we can be confident that John doesn't expect us to interpret Revelation by making up charts or timelines trying to work this out because it's a circular book, not a linear book. Again, because of the nature of apocalyptic literature in Revelation, we're not going to focus too much on the potential meanings of bowls, scrolls, beasts, seals, horses and trumpets. That's all part of this apocalyptic literature and unfortunately when we actually go there and we put too much emphasis on what that scroll means or what that horse means or what that seal means or what that bowl means, it's here with that symbolism that we actually can begin to go off the charts with some pretty far out interpretation here that John really wasn't intending for us to see. There are some weird images in Revelation many-headed animals and graphic pictures of strange things, much of which we don't fully understand now, but they might have had better understanding back then. So as soon as we try and venture into the unknown of interpreting what these images and bowls and scrolls and seals and things mean, as soon as we get into that with our perceived accuracy that we can interpret that, that's where we get into trouble, confuse ourselves and confuse others because John never meant us to go there. Here's another one, there's a significant amount of prophecy through the book of Revelation and with prophecy comes uh, varying ways of interpreting it and particularly so for the book of Revelation, Uh, again because it's got so much mystery there, there's actually five solid, five ways that solid Christians interpret the book of Revelation and they are markedly different. On your handout there, I've given some stuff, I'm just going to read through them quickly here. The one group of uh, interpreters of the of Revelation says um, it's a preterist interpretation and preterists believe that all of Revelation, so everything you see in that book, has actually taken place in the first century when John has written this book. So everything's happened as far as they're concerned and it's only now the second coming of Christ to come. That's what they believe. A historicist believes that Revelation has rolled out through the major movements of Christianity and the world down through the centuries of time in some sort of order. They believe in a historical interpretation here. So, Jesus' death and resurrection, the fall of the Roman Empire, the rise of Islam, believe it or not, the French General Napoleon, Hitler and the Second World War, the nation of Israel coming into being in 1948 and probably the coronavirus of today from a historist point of view, they would say these are all the outworkings of Revelation down through history. Solid believers and Christians believe that's how you interpret the book of Revelation. The futurist view of Revelation sees this as something happening within the last generation before Jesus returns. So all of the book, all of the book of Revelation plays itself out in the last 40 years or so of the last generation before Jesus comes. So in their mind, nothing's really happened out of this book. It's all going to happen in that last 40 years just prior to Jesus returning. Another interpretation that that believers work with through the book of Revelation is the idealist view of Revelation. They see all of Revelation as a symbolic portrayal of conflict between good and evil, between God and Satan through all of time. They, they see this symbolism right through the book of Revelation, and that's what it is. It's just this conflict ongoing between good and evil, between God and Satan all the time. Uh, there's some believers who see in, uh, Revelation and interpret it like that. A fifth one is eclecticism. The eclectic view of Revelation says there actually can be a mix of all four previous views... Put together in accordance with scripture and history working together. So it can actually take all elements of those previous four views. Now, I'm not going to say anything else more about those views. That just highlights, even as I say that, the potential complexity and the varied opinion here of Revelation down through the centuries. Solid Christians hold all of those views, some more, some less, depending on those views, but that's how they see that. Here's something else to help us as we read uh, the book of Revelation. Hold all interpretations loosely, loosely. End time theology is a secondary or an open-handed issue. So therefore we should hold any view that we may have or we may land on loosely. We don't have to dig trenches and actually get into warfare over our views of end-time theology, start lobbing grenades of doctrine or or theology at each other saying you must believe this. How you think Revelation may play out isn't, it's not a first-order gospel issue, it's open-handed, we actually can have different views there and we can all get along as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I have witnessed some people get so carried away with a belief of their particular end time thinking that they'll divide friendships up over it. Well, I believe it's preterist. Well, I believe it's futurist. And then they won't talk to each other. It doesn't have to be that way. I suggest hold your view loosely. Loosely. The other reason I say that is because it's good to keep an open mind and to listen to other people's thoughts it's good to hear what other people are thinking as they read through Scripture and hear how they've arrived where they've arrived, particularly with the book of Revelation. The moment we begin to close our minds off and we say, I'm just not going to listen, well, that's not a good place to be. If you start to close your mind off, you're not actually going to be open to hearing what another point of view may be. So hold your views loosely and keep an open mind. And I would particularly say that today, because I'm sure that those five views are all out in front of me right now, and maybe I've already gotten people disagreeing with what I'm saying. Hold it loosely Keep an open mind. Whatever John wanted the seven churches to understand back then when he wrote this to them is the very same thing the Holy Spirit wants us to understand today. In other words, John wasn't writing something for them and then the Holy Spirit's giving us something different 2,000 years later. What the Spirit wanted them to understand then is exactly the same thing the Holy Spirit wants us to understand today as we go through that it's the same message today as it was back then. Now, I've got a couple other things on the sheet there and you can read those uh, when you're ready but but they are some general, yet I believe important things that we must hold in place when reading this challenging book. It's not an exhaustive list of helps but I, I think if we can put some of those in place, it'll help us tremendously in getting a better grasp here on what the Holy Spirit's telling us through the book of Revelation. They're just some guiding foundations and some guiding principles to get us point in the right direction. But here's the question, so why did John write this letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor back around AD 95? So about 60 odd years after Jesus has died and resurrected and gone back to the presence of his Father. What was the occasion here or the background? That actually led to John writing the third because this is really important, important for us to see as well, John, why did you write this? What's the point of this? Well, we believe this, we believe that the Roman Emperor Domitian who was the emperor et, uh, over the Roman Empire at that time, he had ramped up a level of persecution upon all people who didn't recognise him as a god. Uh, Domitian, the Emperor Domitian, he revived emperor worship, it had died down over the previous decades but he actually reinstated it and said this is what all people in the Roman Empire must do, they must worship the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman emperor, sorry, as a god, to be deified, he is a god person. Domitian was a very insecure ruler at that time, he was executing people who he may have had any suspicion about, that might have been trying to actually undermine his power or to move into his position. It didn't matter who you were, whether it was a government colleague or a family member within Domitian's family, if he had any suspicions of who you are, off came your head or you were fed to the lions. He was a very insecure ruler and part of this was to um, build up again emperor worship for his own identity and his own security. He actually reinstated or revived emperor worship at that time. So obviously, emperor worship was a no-go zone for Christians. They're not going to worship the emperor, they only worship the risen Jesus Christ, the one and only Lord. There's no one else to worship except him. It's also quite probable with this Roman emperor worship that it took hold of the communities because they thought this is a good thing for their prosperity as well, this will unite all the communities together. So then Christians at that particular time were seen as not only rebels to the Roman Empire because they refused to worship Domitian as their Lord but they also didn't go along with the community spirit, they were rebels towards the community as well because they didn't join in with the community activities to actually join in with this emperor worship as part of community life. Now the Jewish religion at the time was allowed... To maintain its worship, it was accepted or exempted from that but every other sect or group or individual was expected to follow the community and to worship the Roman Emperor. Of course, the Christians weren't going to do that, they weren't going to worship a Roman Emperor. At that time, Christianity was very, very small, nothing like it is today. It was actually seen as some sort of a sect or break away from Judaism at that time and particularly at this time as well um, during when the the Jews had a good relationship with Rome to keep their own worship there was actually heated persecution between the Jews and the Christians because they thought, hang on everybody sees these Christians as a breakaway sect of the Jews if they're going to be rebels that maybe that might just align um, the Christians with the Jews and they'll get in trouble as well so actually there was much persecution between the Jews and the Christians that as well All of this comes together like that. Depending on the strength of the convictions of various churches, they were either heavily persecuted or lightly persecuted. If they are a really soft church, trying to walk a middle line, trying to appease both sides, possibly less persecution there. If they had really strong gospel convictions about Jesus as Lord and they followed them uh, courageously, then they faced severe persecution, which they did at this time loss of all their property. So they come in and they just remove you from your house and they put you out in the street and you just lost everything. They beat you, they put you in prison. And some, many, were killed for their faith as well during this particular time, all simply for following Jesus. So who's John writing to? John's writing to a confused and suffering church facing intense persecution at this particular time. They're asking all sorts of questions here, saying, Jesus, is this real? Are you real, Jesus? Should we be facing this persecution? Is this what we are to expect as believers at this particular time? Is We're confused. Here's what Leon Morris had to say here in setting up Revelation for us as well. He says this, to a church perplexed by such problems, he's talking about the churches back then, Revelation was written. We must not think of it as a kind of intellectual puzzle, spot the meaning of this symbol, sent to a relaxed church with time on its hands and an inclination for solving mysteries. It was sent to a little, persecuted, frustrated church, one which did not know what to make of the situation in which it found itself. John writes to meet the need of that church." Beautiful picture here of where the church was at that time, in a tough spot, in a really difficult situation. These seven churches that John is writing to, they are struggling. They are confused. Their hope is waning. Some people are walking away from the faith. They're suffering on many fronts. People, family, and friends are being killed. The church in Asia Minor, where John is writing to, feels like a very small fish in a deep, dark ocean with filled with ravenous sharks. They feel absolutely insignificant. So John writes to comfort them, to console them, to give them hope to stay the course and to persevere forwards to the upward call of Christ Jesus no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through. John writes to them to reassure them that what you're going through is to be expected. Yeah, this is normal Christianity, John is saying. John writes to them to tell them to not fear tomorrow. Why? For tomorrow has already been won by Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a letter of hope. Look at where John begins to describe himself here at the outset of this. Look in verse 9, he says this, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Paul Patmos, an account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What's John saying there? I'm sharing in this tribulation with you. We are in a tribulation, John's saying. He's exiled on the island of Patmos. He's suffering there because of his witness for Christ in isolation now. He's all on his own on this island. I'm your brother, he says. I'm a partner in this tribulation and what you're going through. We are doing this together in different contexts. Yes, John says it is about God's kingdom. It may seem small, it may seem insignificant, it may seem like is it really worth all this in comparison to this world where we live and what's happening around about us. But John is saying, but the kingdom is the ultimate reality. We need to see beyond the present reality that's actually giving us all this unrest and oppression right now. He said there is an ultimate reality we've got to see, and that is the kingdom of Christ. But we can't see it in the physical eyes, we've got to see it by the eyes of faith. And it is the ultimate reality beyond the present reality that we find ourselves in. And that is a major thought right through this letter as well, that John's going to communicate. We live in a now and not yet kingdom. Yes, Jesus has brought the kingdom in, and it's here now, but it's not yet fully in place. It's now, and not yet. John's going to come back to this a number of times. He's going to say there's a battle that continues on every day, every day between the kingdom of this world, led by Satan, and also the kingdom of Christ. That battle is happening all the time, all the time. The seven churches are experiencing this battle right now just through what they're going through and we too will experience it in subtle ways as well and maybe not so subtle ways as well and I think probably the way culture's going with political thoughts, I mean, it's probably going to get worse, not easy for us. We may not find that we're too far behind some of these churches, maybe not too far down the track. The battle goes on, John will say, but the war has been won. The battle goes on but the war has been won. So Revelation here is all about Jesus Christ, right from the very first chapter of Revelation, John sets the tone here for the central figure in this letter. This is what he wants us to see. He wants us to see a big vision of Jesus Christ. He wants us to see that. It's a letter here that John's going to write to put our hope in trust in Jesus. And not only to put our hope and trust in him, but to grow our hope and trust in Jesus at the same time as they're experiencing these persecutions and their trials. It's not a letter to predict the future. That's not where our emphasis should be. That's not where our focus should be. That's not where we should be thinking, how can I predict the future through the book of Revelation? It's not about that. It's actually about Christ and our hope and trust in Him first and foremost. That's the focus here of what we're going to see in Revelation. And in one of the many visions that John has given here, he sees Jesus Christ first, which is very telling in what John is trying to tell us. This is the first thing he sees. What does John hear? He hears this thundering voice like a trumpet And this, like signifying power and clarity and where Jesus says this in verse 11. He says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Write this down and strengthen these churches with that. He hears this unbelievable thundering voice and then he turns around to see where this voice is coming from and here's what he sees next in verses 12 through 16. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands was, la- was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters, in his hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's an amazing picture. That's an awesome picture. That's a picture that is meant to take our breath away. That is a picture of Jesus Christ that's meant to stop us in our tracks and think about who He is. You see, when John walked the earth with Jesus, he would often lean upon Jesus' chest in the close friendship they had and rest upon Jesus, just rest upon him like his best friend is what they did in culture back then. But John gets a really new vision of Jesus in this opening chapter of Revelation. It's an awe-filled vision. It's a vision to build hope. It's a vision to build strength. Here's John's response to that in verse 17 as he sees that vision. He says there, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's like the life was just drawn out of John when he saw this picture of this vision of Jesus Christ and his splendour and his glory and his power. You see, to see Christ at this time was to see something awesome and powerful in this figure who is with his people. He's amongst the seven golden lampstands there, which are the seven churches of Asia that he's about to write to. Jesus is with his people in the middle of this persecution, in the middle of this trial they're going through. And here's what Jesus has to say to the churches back then and also to us today. He says this in verse 17 and 19, following on, partway through 17, saying, "'Fear not, I am the first and the last. "'I'm the living one. "'I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, "'and I have the keys of death and hate. "'Write, therefore, the things that you have seen.'" those that are, and those that are to take place after this. He tells John to write these things that are going to happen now, some things will happen now, and also things that are going to happen into the future, things that will take place. Some things will be happening right now through this book and other things will be happening down the track in the future. But I want us to take note here, where we begin to sort of wrap this up, Of Jesus' first words here to these struggling churches. What's he say there? Fear not, fear not. From the Lord of history who says, I'm the beginning and I'm the end, I'm the first and I'm the last, I'm the sovereign ruler of all time, I know what you're going through. Fear not, fear not he says to them so right from the get-go Jesus wants to strengthen and reassure us that we don't have fear for today and we don't have fear for tomorrow Jesus says fear not now I don't know what you're going through today I don't know what confusion or troubles you're facing. I don't know what decisions you've had to make this week or things that have been said to you but I know what Jesus says He says, Fear not. Who knows whatever persecution or ridicule you might be facing, even mild forms or more intense forms? Jesus says, Fear not. I don't know this week whether you might face sickness or injury or even death in a family. Jesus says, Fear not. I don't know what you've got ahead of you at the moment, but I know what Jesus says. He says, fear not. Now here is Jesus' strength and confidence in being able to say that. He says, I am the sovereign Lord. Through the cross I have died and now I live forevermore. I have conquered death and sin forevermore. In my sovereignty, in my power, I hold all power over death and the grave. There's nobody and there's nothing that can take that power away from me, says Jesus. So he says, fear not tomorrow, for tomorrow has already been won. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today as we come and uh, just begin this start in Revelation. Lord, a book full of mystery, full of majesty, also with misery. But it's a book that's designed to build our faith, build our hope, build our perseverance, build our convictions. Uh, Lord, I pray today that as we get into this book over these next few weeks and months, I pray, God, that you will do an amazing work here at growing a bigger vision of who Jesus Christ is in our lives. And Lord, we won't get caught up in the minute detail. We won't get caught up in the symbolism, Lord, where we lose our way and lose our focus about what You are trying to communicate through this book. But I pray that through this, Lord, just as I've been looking at this this week and just feeling a real excitement in my own heart, my own soul, just seeing what they are, what John is showing us here. I pray, God, that my prayer is that we will have an enlarged vision of Christ. And that vision will prepare us for anything, even death, Lord. Well, we will look death in the face and say, fear not, for tomorrow has already been won. Father, we thank you for that. We ask and pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.